scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, page number 556 in your pew Bibles. And while you're turning there, the children ages 3 to 8 are free to be dismissed for the children's Bible lesson. repeat one thing that I've said numerous times. Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon at the end of his life after he repented of his sin and returned back to the Lord, which that his sin was essentially straying away from the Lord. And so this is his letter to his 18-year-old self. These are the things that he would wish that he would listen to at 18 years old. Um, Ecclesiastes, as I said last week, is uh, somewhat repetitive, which again says a lot more about you and me than it is in any way um, uh, saying anything negative about God's Word. If we wouldn't be so stubborn, if we would listen and take, take to heart and heed the things that are said, then they wouldn't have to be repeated. But they are, which says again a lot more about you and me. So today we're looking at chapter 7. Chapter 7 looks in many ways, these first 13 verses especially, look a lot like Proverbs. Why? Well, because the same guy who wrote Ecclesiastes wrote Proverbs. And so we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 1 through 3. But I'll also read through verses 25 through 29. And I'm going to do as I've done in previous sermons, and that is read um, not have you stand, and we'll read the, this section of Scripture all here at the beginning, but I'll reference it throughout the sermon. Let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Lord, please open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from this, your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. The bottom line about Ecclesiastes is that it is, it is counterintuitive. Ecclesiastes is counterintuitive. Meaning it says things that are the opposite of the way we would kind of naturally think. We might naturally think ABC, but Ecclesiastes is telling us XYZ. So Ecclesiastes is counterintuitive. And as a matter of fact, as a reminder, this series through Ecclesiastes I have called Joy at the End of the Tether, which comes from uh, Doug Wilson's book by that title, Joy at the End of the Tether. The idea being that we are created beings. As created beings, we have limits. We have limitations. We don't have the ability to figure life out. We don't have the ability to live forever. We don't have the ability to make sure that everything that goes on after we die works out the way we would like it to. We don't have the ability to get ultimate meaning out of life or ultimate satisfaction out of life. And what we should learn from Ecclesiastes is that these are blessings. These are good things. It's, it's a wonderful uh, thing to have limitations. And so what we're called to do from Ecclesiastes is to have joy at the end of the tether. To enjoy the gifts God gives us this day. Don't try to wring too much out of life. You're not going to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction and purpose in life. Certainly some. God gives us things to enjoy. But enjoy the gifts of the day. Don't expect too much from it. Don't, be, uh, don't take yourself so seriously, in a sense. 
These are all things that we learn from Ecclesiastes. And these are things as well that are counterintuitive. So the book of Ecclesiastes is counterintuitive, which means that God's word is, in, is counterintuitive, which means that God himself is counterintuitive. So let's learn more about this from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. First of all, I want you to see that it's counterintuitive to appreciate funerals. It's counterintuitive to appreciate, look forward to going to funerals. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 4. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart or take it to heart. Sorrow, which is sometimes in other translations um, translated anger, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Which I believe what he's saying there is that it's, it's foolish to seek out sycophantic laughter rather than redemptive correction. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, Anton, the first Sunday of this year, preached this passage, preached from this, this passage. He said, essentially, that it's a good thing to think about death for a couple of reasons. One is it forces you to look to Christ. It makes you think about eternal life. It makes you think about your relationship with God and being right with God. So it leads us to Christ. And he also said that it's good to think about death because it makes us wise stewards of our time. I certainly agree with those sentiments. It is good, as Anton said... And as Ecclesiastes says, it is good for us to think about death, to begin life knowing the end of life, to have, I'm sure there's some sort of, uh, you know, maybe that's one of the things in the seven habits of highly successful people, isn't it? Something like that. You know, so I'm sure there are lots of sort of motivational books or whatever that kind of say that, that same sort of thing. It's good for us to think about death. We had a memorial service here in our sanctuary on Tuesday. It was for Dent Morton. Um, Dent and Kim started attending here in the fall. And uh, they had been here twice, maybe three times. Well, first of all, go, going back a little bit, in January of 2022, he discovered he had some uh, colon cancer. And they went through treatments and you know, kind of thought they had that licked and then... And they, they started attending here, came here a couple of times in the fall. And after a second or third time, I was just talking to them right here at the end of a service. And um, they said, well, we thought we had this one cancer licked and it's actually not licked. And not only is, is that there, but now there's also a pancreatic cancer as well. T two major cancers that were way further along uh, down, the, down the road than, than anyone would want. And they said... Right here. So it's terminal. There's nothing that we're going to be able to do. They planned to join the church, but uh, Dent ended up going down so quickly um, that they were not able to do that. Lord willing, Kim will here soon. But in the final weeks of Dent's life, as he was essentially staring death in the face, um, spiritual new renewal seemed to 
to be happening in his soul. And he was talking with others, family, friends, asking them about where they were in their relationship with the Lord, encouraging them to be seeking God. That's what death will do to you. That's why it's good to appreciate funerals. That's why when it's staring you in the face, um, you will think long and hard about yourself and God and your relationship with God and what happens after death. That's why it's good to consider death. That's why it's good to attend funerals and memorial services. And it's also, some of you know this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but I'll, I'll say it again. It's also a reason why I like calling them funerals and memorial services rather than celebrations of life. I mean, sure, we celebrated Dent's life here on Tuesday a little bit. But we need to think about death, according to Ecclesiastes. We need to stare at it. We need to realize that death ends life. We need to realize that death ends relationships. Death levels the playing field. We need to let death, its reality, affect us. And, and celebrations of life services don't do that. Uh, it, it can be, if, it, if it all it is is a celebration of life service, then it just kind of glosses over what death can teach us. Which is why, in part, why I like calling them funerals and memorial services rather than, rather than celebrations of life. So we need to appreciate funerals. It's counterintuitive to do that, but we need to do it. Ecclesiastes tells us we should. Second, it's counterintuitive to seek out correction. Counterintuitive to seek out correction versus 5, 6, and 7 tell us to desire correction. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. He's saying here that it's better to be rebuked, it's better to be admonished, it's better to be corrected then flattered, complimented, and praised. I mean, sure, we, we like and need. We certainly need some praise every now and then. But most of us can remember those conversations that were corrective in nature and how helpful they were. You know, most people like to correct others, or at least... Uh, as Southerners, we like to correct others behind their back. That's the way we do it in the South. But, it, uh, but he likes to receive correction. Ecclesiastes tells us that the wise like to receive correction. Wise people appreciate it. I know I've been a better person because of the constructive criticism that I've received through the years. I'm thankful for it. As a matter of fact, I have on my to-do list. Um, give feedback to Anton <laughs> because and, and when we were talking not too long ago just kind of having our um, sort of staff goals and ways we can do things better he was saying you know help me give me some correction tell me where I'm, I need to improve and things like that so now it's on my to-do list and still probably don't do it as much as he would like because he's a wise man he wants to learn he wants to get better and, and correction so every now and then I'll help him with his pronunciation on some English but other than that it's a it's a but that's a wise man. He wants that correction. He wants to improve. Proverbs 9 
verses 7, 8, and 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. So it's counterintuitive to appreciate funerals. It's counterintuitive to seek correction. But Ecclesiastes tells us that we should on both accounts. And then third, it's counterintuitive to wait. It's counterintuitive to wait. Or to be patient could be another word. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Solomon advocates great patience here. One of the commentaries says it this way. Wisdom will lead us not to react immediately to circumstances, but will take a longer term view, waiting to see the full measure of a man before deciding how to respond. And I'm convinced that's true. That's what wisdom does. I'm also that convinced that impatience is usually a sign of arrogance and pride on our part. It, it's, it's arrogant or it's, it's being arrogant or prideful in a couple of ways. One, when I'm patient, it's usually because I think I know how things need to be and I don't wait for others to share their opinions, challenge my thinking. And that's just pride. And then I'm, I'm impatient also, um, or when I'm impatient, it's usually because I'm not willing to let God work things out in His timing. Essentially, I want to see, I want to exert my opinion onto a situation, and I want to exert my opinion onto that situation now. The Bible tells us to wait. Impatience is that mindset that essentially says, you know, if everybody would just think like me, if everybody would just do what I say to do, then the world would be a much better place. It's counterintuitive to appreciate funerals, to seek correction. And to wait. But Ecclesiastes tells us to. And then fourth, we learn from Ecclesiastes 7 that it's counterintuitive to seek wisdom over money. Verse 10, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to, the, an advantage to those who seek the sun, who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is, like, is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is similar to what has been said oftentimes here in Ecclesiastes. Again, why would he keep having to repeat it? Because it is our tendency to think that if we had a choice between wisdom and money, we would, our tendency is going to choose money all the time. I mean, really, if you were given the choice of winning... Uh, of, of wisdom or winning $500 million in Powerball, I mean, if you wouldn't be honest if you wouldn't say, it'd be tough to pass up. <laughs> but Ecclesiastes tells us we should. Again, one of the commentaries puts it this way, money is something of a shelter against the winds of misfortune that blow through life, yet it cannot match the sort of comprehensive protection provided by wisdom. And then fifth, it's counterintuitive to enjoy your limitations. 
Verse 25 now. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. The scheme of things is an interesting phrase. I want to understand how things work. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Why people sometimes pursue that. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. What he's saying is that I sought to understand the differences between wisdom and foolishness. And one thing that's very obvious as I think about wisdom versus foolishness is that adultery is stupid. (laughs) I don't know much he's saying here, but adultery is stupid. Uh, Adultery is foolishness. And some of you have experienced that, and you would agree. Yep, I've been down that road, and it is stupidity. It is foolishness. And then verse 7, Behold, this is what I found. Again, remember, he's, he's seeking to understand the difference between wisdom. and He's wanting to understand wisdom and the scheme of things. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, you ladies are thinking, did he just say that he, he can find one in a thousand men he, or wisdom, but there's no intelligent wis, women. Is that, is that what he's saying? I don't believe that's... Um, I like the way the NIV commentary understands this. It says that, wis, that Solomon is saying, I think I can understand men. I, I think I can spot a man when he's found wisdom. So I think I can find that one in a thousand guy. I don't understand women. I don't. I, I can't figure them out. I don't. I don't know when a woman has found wisdom or when she's not. That's that. I just can't tell. I don't know. So then, his conclusion. See, this alone I found. In other words, here's the one thing I've learned. Here's the one thing I have figured out as I've tried to figure everything out. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God created virtuous people. But they have each turned to follow their own downward path. Just a couple of quick comments about this. It's clear to Solomon as he tries to understand things, as he seeks out wisdom, as he looks at people, looks at wisdom, looks at foolishness, it's clear to him that man is sinful. Meaning man is self-centered. You don't have to be a serial killer to qualify as a sinner. Being self-centered, having a very high view of yourself, that sort of pride, that sort of looking to yourself to solve all your problems, that is sin. I I just saw this quote. It's just really kind of amazing. Um, I was not real familiar with this book until I read an article this week. Uh, It's a book by Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile or Stabile. Uh, it's a best-selling book called The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. And here's the quote. Buried in the deepest precincts of being, I sense there is a truer, more luminous expression of myself, and that as long as I remain estranged from it, I will never feel fully alive or whole. And then the article wrote, The human person is not merely good, but a being of luminous light. One may have to dig past culturally imposed norms to find oneself, but once found, the true you is a thing of unspeakable beauty to which Solomon and Ecclesiastes says, 
baloney. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's clown world thinking right there. Man is sinful, self-centered, with such a high view of himself. Which is why we come to conclusions like that. But the second thing that I want to say about this is man being sinful means that man has limits. We're created beings. And we're sinful beings, which means we can't figure things out. We have limited understanding. And we can't find people who have figured things out. Solomon here, he knows that, that all mankind has, has limits. Limits to certainly our righteousness. Limits, limits to knowledge. Limits in skills. Unable to, to see things objectively and therefore to see them properly. In one book I read not too long ago on leadership, the writer said, you don't know everything, you can't do everything, and you aren't completely mature, and you don't have inexhaustible energy. You are not a, just a package of strengths, gifts, and experiences. You are also a collection of weaknesses and susceptibilities. This is true. And what I'm saying that Ecclesiastes is teaching us is that we've got to learn to enjoy those limits. It's counterintuitive to enjoy your limitations. I mean, how many times have you said things like, gosh, if I just had 26 hours in a day, that's so prideful. <laughs> that's prideful to think if I just had more hours in the day, if it, then I would be able to accomplish so much more. The reality is, if you had more hours in a day, you would just have more time to screw everything up. <laughs> it's counterintuitive to, to enjoy our limitations. It's counterintuitive to seek wisdom over money. It's counterintuitive to wait. It's counterintuitive to seek out correction. It's counterintuitive to appreciate funerals. But that's God and God's ways. God's ways are counterintuitive. But the, the wise will travel that counterintuitive road. Just a couple of points of application today. Whatever you're pushing back against right now may be the very thing that would be good for your soul. Whatever you're pushing back against today might be the very thing that would be best for your soul. Whatever you're against, whatever you're arguing against, whatever you're standing against, um, might be something that's very good for your soul. Most of the time we push back against things we don't like, um, things with which we disagree, people we don't respect. But in God's economy, oftentimes those are the very things that He can use to make us more like Christ. Whatever you're angry about might actually be the very thing that God can use to expose your sinful heart. And you've got to consider that. Your anger reveals more about you than it does others. Whatever you're hesitant to do could be the thing you really need to do. You don't want to go here. You don't want to do this. You don't want to talk with someone about that. But it's that sort of situation that has to, the challenge to, has the potential to change you. These sorts of things, appreciating 
or, or learning from your anger, letting the things that you're really pushing against um, teach you, but if you're hesitant to do, do those, if those things are counterintuitive, it's kind of like exercising. We say about exercise that when you're exercising, you're breaking down a muscle to make it better. Christ-like character is like a muscle. You do the opposite of your natural inclinations. You lean into what is counterintuitive that you might become more like Christ. So choose that which is counterintuitive today. Appreciate funerals. Seek out correction. Wait. Seek wisdom over money. And enjoy your limitations. And let me just add, the most important counterintuitive thing you can do is give your life to Christ. Give your life to Jesus. Trust Him rather than thinking you can clean yourself up and make yourself righteous before God. Trust Him to make you right with God rather than yourself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the fact that your ways are counterintuitive to us shows that indeed, as Solomon says, you made man upright, but we have sought out many schemes. Oh Lord, please give us the grace needed to pursue life according to your counterintuitive ways. Through Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing as a hymn of response on Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand.
Amen. Well, let's remain standing as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord this morning. We'll do so by walking through the liturgy printed there to, uh, in your bulletin on that back panel. Uh, I will read the fine print, and then we will, and then you will recite the bold print, and then we will uh, conclude the liturgy by reciting the final paragraph together. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own goodness, but only in your righteousness credited to us. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose manner is always to show mercy. Grant us, therefore, O Lord, the grace to commune now with Christ by faith, that we may evermore live in him and he in us. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you'll take your eyes straight down that back page of your bulletin and look at this question. May I come to the Lord's table? Who may come to the table of the Lord? And I appreciate the way Pastor Brock put it last month. And so I'll say the same thing this month that he said last month. The first qualification of those who may have fellowship with the Lord, which is signified in eating with the Lord, is those who are sinners. Uh, and a very simple way of acknowledging that is, do you find yourself falling short of the standard of wisdom that you just heard? Do you find yourself falling short of the standard of holiness that you know is in your heart? Do you find yourself falling short of what is required to eat with God? And if the answer is yes, then you can move with me to the second qualification. The second qualification of those who may come to the table of the Lord is those who are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, submitted to Him in two ways. First, as Savior. Okay? I cannot justify myself in the presence of God. I've already said that out loud in public. I receive and rest on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now, you, you submit to Jesus as Savior, but you also submit to Him as Lord. Which means you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the King and the Head of the Church. And to submit to Him as Lord is to submit to those that He has ordained and entrusted with the leadership of His body. So if you have submitted yourself to the governing body of this church or any church that professes the one true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come now to the table of the Lord. Now the apostles taught that it is appropriate uh, and even right that we examine ourselves before we come and commune with God. And we do that through the gift of prayer. So let's take a moment now to pray and ready our hearts to eat with God. Father in heaven, these are your gifts for your people. Here we have a visible preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That his sacrifice has fully satisfied for the wrath, 
for the punishment that our sins deserve. And we, now is not the time to profess our faith for the first time in Christ. Now is the time to remember of what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. A substitute, a sacrifice that makes us clean, that makes us pure, that meets the standards of holiness on our behalf. Thanks be to God. And now is a time to receive your real presence. Now is a time to enjoy the gift of being one with you through Christ. And so, Father, if there is any reason why any in this room should refrain from this table, we trust your Spirit to work so now in the minds and hearts of those who need to remain seated and not come to be with you today. And to that end, O oh Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and sanctify this moment and make it edifying to us now as we receive your gifts of love and grace. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take a moment and remain seated while the music plays and prepare your heart to come to the table of the Lord.
on the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said before his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. The body of Christ, take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many and the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ, take and drink. Amen. Well, one of the blessings of, you know, the real point of God giving us the gift of His sacrament is so that you can experience, so you can taste and see what we're about to sing. You can taste and sing how sweet it is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's close this Lord's Day service by singing together this closing chorus, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Stand and sing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. today to stimulate your thinking. I'd love a chance to get to know you a little bit better and have some conversation. Please feel free to reach out to me in whatever way is comfortable for you. You can come by the office or I'll buy you lunch or just a cup of coffee. Of course, you can always come by on Sunday mornings and we can meet face to face. Our new service time is 9.30 a.m.